Hi, good morning, church. Morning. Uh, thanks, Audrey, and the music team as well for leading us to focus our attention on God, who is our King, which is the sermon title for today, God as King. I don't know about you, but I feel that the concept of king and kingship is something that is easily lost on us as moderns. Certainly, it's lost on me, right? In this generation, for me, you know, concepts like democracy or even communism, it's a lot more familiar than what it means to have a king and a kingdom. My understanding is that, you know, the idea of a sole ruler is, or someone who rules over an empire is generally frowned upon in our society or in our world today, so much so that we often associate the word dictator with someone who is ruling over uh, one's people. Even in countries where some sort of kingship or royalty is retained, for example, like UK, right, or Japan, Thailand, or even our neighbours, Malaysia, Indonesia, with some kind of royalty involved, we now know that the governance of the country is no longer the king or the royal family's responsibility. So these are two separate things altogether. So the royal family may still be involved in some ways, but they no longer exert that kind of political power like they used to do in days of old. And so when we come to the Bible, I'm sure, not sure about you, but when we hear things like God is king or the kingdom of God, sometimes there's this fuzzy idea because these are not a, this is not the generation, you know, the era that we live under. I don't consider myself an expert in this area, uh, this complexity of this subject matter. I didn't study political science. I didn't study history when I was in university. So I just share my humble reflections on what it means when it comes to the Bible, when it says that God is king. And I'll try to put in images as well and reflection points. How should we relate to God when God is king? So we begin where we left off on Christmas. On Christmas, I have preached from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, which was quoted in Matthew chapter 4. So let me jump to Matthew chapter 4, at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been in prison, put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So this was the passage, verse 16, which I talked about at Christmas. We focus on verse 17 today. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Come, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, your life-giving word. Lord, we want to come before you and humbly bow before your word. And we ask, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit grants us understanding and revelation. Importantly, we ask, Holy Spirit, you help us to obey and to worship you, Lord, our King and Master. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 17 says, repent. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Or in some other Bible translations, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand means close by, right? So why didn't Jesus say, rejoice for the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of heaven is near? Why did he say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near? After all, in the later part of verse uh, chapter 4, verse 23, we read this account. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. 
and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over all Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region of Jordan followed him. Now that sounds like a wonderful picture, isn't it? People are being healed. We see wonderful healing and miracles. People are being set free. The word of God is, no, the word is spreading those days, spreading like wildfire. Hey, there's this prophet, wonderful healer in town. And so God's kingdom is a fantastic kingdom compared to the oppressive Roman Empire. What Jesus was doing was really life-giving, wonderful news for the people in those days. And so in the light of that context, as well as what I heard in Christmas, Jesus is the light in our darkness. It's good news, right? So why didn't Jesus say, rejoice, for the kingdom of God is at hand? But instead he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What I suggest to us today, it's because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has certain and very different ways of living. Certain rules and ways of living that are entirely different from the kingdoms of this world. Because Precisely because Jesus saw the multitudes, the large crowds following him, then he realized, hey, there's a need to teach them what the kingdom of God really is about. Then he went up to the mountaintop, and that's where we get the famous passage, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Jesus is well aware that human beings, we are so prone to seek God for our own benefits. We don't really want to live as kingdom people. We just want all the benefits, but we don't want all the responsibilities. I like how John chapter 2, verse 24, by the Amplified Bible says how Jesus understood human nature. He says, Jesus, uh, John chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them, referring to humanity, because he knew all people and understood the superficiality and the fickleness of human nature. That's us. We are superficial, we are fickle, we are weak as humans. And so even when we profess that Jesus will follow you, God knows Maybe you say so now, but you're really not that fantastic, not that trustworthy. So God knows that we are weak, uh, superficial, and fecal. And so he begins by teaching about the ser- on the Sermon on the Mount what it means to truly be kingdom people. He begins by saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, these are very counter-cultural values, very different from the ways of our world. There are tons of sermons and books out there on the Sermon on the Mount, so I don't have to elaborate a lot here. Suffice for me to say today, for example, that the world looks out for those who are up there, out there, prominent people, people who will not be seen as poor in spirit or financially poor. This gospel is even more blunt. Blessed are the poor. Matthew's gospel, at least poor in spirit, but actually it's the same. The world does not look up to this group of people, those who are poor in spirit and those who are poor. But Jesus says, look, these are the people who have the kingdom of heaven. The world looks at those who are lively, happening. They always project a happy image. The youngsters in our midst, look at your Instagram, right? TikTok, Facebook for the older ones. We generally see the good things. Very few of us will post very sad things, right? Maybe passing of pets, you know, family crisis. Some of these we may share from time to time. But generally, we don't put all these negative things out there. So the world does not look for those who mourn. They want to celebrate. 
They are not interested in those who are mourning. They want to quickly just cover it up. The world says we have to stand up for ourselves. Don't be meek. You have to fight to earn your own living, for your own treasures, whatever you want, you must fight for it. But yet Jesus teaches a completely different way of living altogether. That's why the kingdom of God requires repentance. Repentance at the end of the day is not so much just saying sorry. Yes, it involves that. But repentance, from the Bible's point of view, has a lot more to do with our minds rather than our mouths. Now, the very phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God already implies that it is something beyond our natural world. That is why it is supernatural. And that's why repentance or change of view or mindsets are required. Let me just give you a simple analogy to illustrate why a change of mindset is needed when you live in a different kingdom or different country. So here in Singapore, for example, you know, drivers, we sit on the right side of the vehicle. But when you go to the US, the drivers sit on the left side. And so when you go over there and they come over to us, it will require a period of adjustment. Same with crossing the road as well. For us, we have a natural inclination, right, to know which side to look when we cross the road first, right? But when you go over there, because the traffic's on the other side, you need to adjust. Your brain needs to be rewired to think differently in order to live according to the rules of the country, correct? And so it is with us. When the Bible talks about rewiring of brain or changing of mind, it really it's found in this Greek word called metanoia, which we English we translate as repentance. So the psychologists, now we know, creating new neural pathways. That's what happens in our brain when we develop new patterns, new ways of thinking. That's creating new neural pathways or the rewiring of our brains. But in the Greek word, it simply means change of mind. And that's why Jesus says, not rejoice for the kingdom of heaven is near, but repent because the kingdom of heaven is a completely different way of living. It's not enough just to say sorry. Yes, that's important. But more important than that is the way you change your mind to live differently. Give you another illustration. When you quarrel with someone, right, especially your spouse, for example, the person may say sorry. But what you're really after is a change of behavior, isn't it? What you really want is why you always leave this pair of messy clothes on the floor. The person can say sorry a thousand times. But what you're really after is the person changes the mind to think that messy is not good. <laughs> then remove the power of clothes and live a tidy life. Correct? So that's what we are really after. We are not just after the sorry. That's important, yes. But you can say a thousand times sorry and you don't change your lifestyle. What is really important is to change the mind so the person understands, oh, messy is not good. <laughs> and then does something completely different altogether. And that's what Bible talks about when it talks about repentance. It's a change of mindset completely. So intuitively, I think, uh, intellectually, cognitively, we have no problems accepting the understanding that God is king. It requires a different lifestyle. But as I shared, because we as moderns, especially here in Singapore, we no longer live with a monarchy, and so tend to forget what images and responses are called for when we acknowledge that God is king. By the way, this sermon series, uh, this sermon today is part of this long series, Knowing God, the Character and the Expressions of Who uh, God Is. So let's consider right now the images of what a king looks like, what a king is like. Very often we hear images of God as good shepherd, right? He's a good shepherd, the servant who washes the feet of the disciples. He's the teacher, he's the porter, and even our intimate heavenly father. And because of these images, and they're all correct, so we tend to forget this side of 
what kingship looks like. So let me just point out certain images and characteristics of a king and the kingship, the kingdom. Number one, a king is never voted into power. A king is king by birthright. Whether he inherits the throne later on is a different matter, but because of birth, naturally, the king is destined from birth. So his power is inherent from birth. His kingship is not conferred by men. Similarly, we do not make Jesus king. All we do is just to acknowledge that he is king. And that's why in the Christmas story, we know that the Magi, they went to seek out the newborn king. Very simple. They knew by their culture, reality, that, hey, a king is born. I'm going to go out there and find this king. A king is never voted into power, not like democracy. We vote our leaders into power, but not for the king. Similarly, a king, therefore, cannot be voted out of power. Whether we like Jesus or not, whether this world accepts Jesus as king or not, it will not change the fact that Jesus was king before this world began, and he will still be king when this world is destroyed. He will forever be king because that is who he is. That is his identity. Number three, a king's authority is absolute. A king's word is law. A king's decree is unchanging. When the king speaks, he speaks with absolute authority. No one dares to defy the king. When the king says something, it is a command. It is not a plea, you know, oh, please do it. Or worse, an option that you can choose, oh, I don't want to obey the king. No, it's not like that at all. Everyone has to obey the king's orders. We cannot negate his pronouncements. We cannot set aside his decrees or amend his statutes. Number four, a king embodies the government of his kingdom. A king's presence is the presence of his authority. A king's name is the essence of his authority. And so we understand when the king shows up, his full authority is present. We are all standing in awe of the king. But when the king is not present, his name alone is enough to reflect his authority. Right? He may not be there present physically, but once you call, use his name, it means his authority is present. And so I thank God for stuff like Chinese period dramas. It teaches me a bit of what the king is like, at least in the Chinese ancient world, when they call the emperor, right? And so when the emperor comes, naturally, there's an entourage. And then everybody bows before the emperor. But when the emperor doesn't go, cannot go, what does he do? He sends the edict. And then in the Chinese period dramas, they will come with the edict, and then they will say, Sen zi dao, right? And everybody will do some, don't know what, then they will bow down, right? Even though the king is not physically present, but the word of the king is there. It symbolizes his presence and everybody bows to the word, to the edict. And importantly, nobody dares to defy whatever the emperor decrees, correct? Otherwise, it is, the Chinese will say, zan beheaded, your head will be chopped off if you refuse to obey the king's edict. So that's the idea we should have when we address, when we acknowledge that God is king. But too often we swing to the other side, we believe, we know we like all the other nice images. I am shepherd, father. Like my daughter always abuse this privilege she has with me, take advantage of me as a father. So we forget that actually God is king. And there are certain decrees and laws that we need to obey. Number five, a king rules, a king reigns. A king will provide order and protect his realm 
so that its subjects may prosper and live in peace. So let's not forget that the king that we worship is the king of heaven. He's actually the Lord of hosts. He does not have a physical army, a military army like we see in our world today, but he is the Lord of hosts. And we're talking about heavenly armies here. Thousands upon thousands of angels. That's God's army. He is the commander of the Lord's army as well. And so let's not forget, it's unseen, but still he will protect and provide for all who live under his kingdom realm. Number six, a king's wealth is measured by his property. A king personally owns everything in his domain, including the citizens. So a kingdom is the only form of government where the ruler owns everything and everyone. And so when it comes to our context, the king of heaven owns everything everywhere in both the natural and supernatural realms. Now, the understanding that a king's wealth is measured by his property is the very reason why the ancient world is filled with so much war, fighting. Because for them, my territory, the physical territory I own, is the expression of my glory and my wealth and my power. Today, we live in a completely different culture. Democracy, countries are drawn with boundaries, got a lot of other things. But in those days, a king's wealth is measured by what he owns, including the very people who live in that land. Number seven, a king's citizenry represents his glory. The people of the kingdom are supposed to represent the kingdom. We as God's kingdom people are to reflect the glory and the character of our king who is righteous, just, compassionate, full of glory. And that's why Jesus teaches on the servant on the mount, hey, live like this. Kingdom people, you live like this and then you will bring glory to the Father who is in heaven. So we either live as good citizens, ambassadors of God's kingdom, or we don't. And we bring dishonor and shame to the kingdom of God and to God's name. So a king is powerful and glorious. These are just some of the images I want to bring to our attention this morning. We must remember that we do not simply approach a king without reverence and without permission. Remember Queen Esther, the book of Esther? And she said, you know, even though she was queen, she recognized that she cannot happily just walk into the king's presence one day without any permission, without good cause. She knows that if she entered the king's presence without permission, there was a chance that she would be beheaded and killed. And so that's the understanding we need to have when we approach God as king. We need to come with reverence and awe. Our king is a gloriously powerful king. But again, like I said, many of us, we prefer Psalm 23. We don't prefer Psalm 145, which I already read earlier. God is glorious king. But that's true. He is glorious king. He has power over diseases. He has power over the dominions of darkness. He has power over death. And death is the greatest enemy. All of us have to face this battle at some point in time. And these are the very battles that we cannot overcome on our own. But yet God has overcome every single one of these. That's why he's the most gloriously powerful king. Unfortunately, because God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, we tend to ignore it or forget it. You know, God's kingdom, as Jesus taught in other parables, is like a mustard seed. You want to know the size of a mustard seed? You just take out your pen and then you put a dot on your finger. That's the size of a mustard seed. That's how small it is. And because things are so small, we tend to ignore it or forget about it, that God's kingdom will eventually grow to be a huge tree. right? And so I pray for all of us, to again to be reminded by the word of God that God's kingdom is a glorious kingdom. God is a glorious king. 
He may be unseen, the kingdom may be unseen, it may be counter-cultural, but don't forget, it will, it does possess all the characteristics of a king and a kingdom. Importantly, let's note this, that God's kingdom is the only kingdom that will prevail and last forever. All the kingdoms of this world, however good they may be, eventually will come to an end. There is only one king that will forever rule in eternity. So how then should we live in response to God as king? Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We need a change of mind to recognize that while we live in this earthly world, we see what we see with our natural eyes. There is a supernatural world, an unseen world, and we live in light of that reality as well. We need to live in light of the unseen world. So again, because we moderns have so much autonomy, we forget that actually as citizens of this unseen world, there are certain duties and responsibilities we need to do as subjects of God's kingdom. So let me suggest four repentant ways. Repentant, remember, it's not just saying sorry, but change of mind. So rewiring our brains to live according to these ways. So if you live according to these ways, it demonstrates that you are truly repentant. Your lives have changed. So number one, we bow in reverence. So in those days, in ancient days, you bow before a physical king, right? Or the statue of a king, or the edict, whatever. But how does it look like for us now? Now that we have no physical king, no statue, no idol that we're bowing to. For me, I want to suggest two practical ways. Number one, kneeling in prayer. Here in corporate service, obviously, we don't have things for you to kneel except when you come out for communion later on. But in other church traditions, the Anglican Church or Roman Catholic Church, for example, in the ritual of worship, they frequently kneel. But what about us? May I suggest then that we learn to kneel in prayer, private prayer. That's between you and God. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about it as well. When you pray, don't pray out loud. Stand in the corner. Pray out loud. Everybody says you know. But when you pray, go to your room in secret. When you pray, your Heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret, He will reward you. So I encourage us, in your own private prayers, kneel as a sign of your reverence to the Lord. Second practical way to bow in reverence, as it were, is to gather for corporate worship. Together for corporate worship, as we are doing now, for those online, I know there's certain tensions. Sometimes you're not able to come because of immobility issues, whatever it is. But as we are able, let us come together for corporate worship. Try to envisage every worship service really as the gathering of kingdom people, kingdom subjects, kingdom citizens who are coming to pay tribute and honour and glory to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's not something that we take lightly. God is calling for a gathering. Imagine in those days, if the king calls for a gathering, are you going to be at home doing your own things? <laughs> no, everybody has to come together before the Lord. So think of it as the God's command, summon all of us. We come together once a week. We worship in reverence and in awe. Later on in our communion time, we will sing this hymn, Behold the Lamb. It ends, uh, every stanza ends with this phrase, Around the table of the king. Maybe you don't like the Chinese period dramas or the Korean period dramas. You like the medieval knights, King Arthur, knights around the table, right? But it's the same idea. When the king gathers his people around the table, it is both a privilege, but one that it should be treated with awe and reverence. And we gather around the table of our king later on. We bow in worship and reverence. Second, we submit in obedience. As mentioned earlier, who dares to disobey the king's edict? 
That's punishment by death. So all God's commands are decrees to be obeyed, not suggestions for us to pick and choose selectively. Even in the Old Testament, while Moses put it as, you know, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. But it's actually the same idea. If you disobey, it brings about death. Because curse brings about death. It's the same concept all the time. It's how God is saying it to us in different ways, through different authors, different books of the Bible. But it's the same message. Obey and you will live. Disobey and you will die. If we are coming to Jesus like the crowds did in Matthew chapter 4, only because we want blessings and benefits that God can give to us, then all the more we must repent, change our mind, because the kingdom of God is already here. And God will exert His kingdom rule one day, completely forever. And one day, our King will return in His full glory to judge the living and the dead. And that is all of us will come under the judgment of God. Obey brings life and blessings. Disobey brings death. In my sermon next month, I will be preaching about judgment, life after death. Not a popular subject, but important to remind all of us there is judgment, uh, life after death. And the consequences for disobedience are tremendously severe. Yet at the same time, I think the third response we need to have is to live in confidence. Yes, we submit in obedience, we worship God, we bow in reverence. But as people who have been blessed to live under God's kingdom, rule and reign, we should also live in confidence. Not pride, you know, the kind of arrogance, but in quiet confidence and assurance that this king will take care of his kingdom people. That this king is good to live under his rule and reign is a fantastic thing because God, our God, is king. We have full confidence in God to protect and to provide for all his kingdom citizens. And that's why Jesus, in the same Sermon on the Mount, he's able to say, hey, why do you worry? Why do you run after all these things like the world does? Don't you know your heavenly Father will provide for you everything? But instead, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Because once you're living under the kingdom, you don't have to worry. The king will take care of everything for you. And so we are able to live in confidence. So we reflect on our lives. Are we always living very worried lives? Or are we living as confident people? We may not know everything, but we are confident of who God is. So that's a sign that you're being repentant. You live in confidence, not in arrogance, but in confidence of who our God and King is. And finally, as kingdom people, we need to proclaim and influence. To proclaim that indeed, the kingdom of God is here. It's good news. And then to influence people for the kingdom of God. The same Sermon on the Mount, that's why Jesus says, we are now the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We are called to proclaim and influence this world and turn the kingdoms of this world into, and to come under the lordship and the kingdom of God. The good news indeed is there is a king and the evils and the kingdoms of this world will one day come to an end and all the kingdoms of the world will one day come under the kingship of Jesus. Until then, it is our responsibility to be God's ambassadors, to proclaim his kingdom and to influence people, eventually pastor the city, to change the world until it reflects kingdom values and principles. So let me close in our sermon series from last year, we have seen, for example, how God is shepherd, his servant, his healer, his provider, his supporter, his teacher, 
But let's not forget that God is also Lord. He's also Master, our church team for the year, mission with the Master, and He's also King. Similar but slight nuances, the differences in meaning. The Master may be Master of the household. The kingdom is not so big as a king with a kingdom, but still, it's the same idea. You obey the Master. You obey the King. And so, mission with the Master, frankly, is not a suggestion. (laughs) Neither is it just an invitation. Actually, it is an invitation, and it's a glorious, privileged invitation to be on mission with the Master, God Himself, because God couldn't do it without us, but He invites us to come alongside, just as the father or the parent is able to do all things, but invites the child to come alongside, to partner, to enjoy the relationship. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it is a call of duty. Just as us men here in Singapore, it's our call of duty to serve national service. That's our citizen, citizenry duty, right? And so as kingdom people, we have a duty, a call for all of us to live as His people. This part, it is not an invitation or an option, but we all must be on mission with the Master to obey whatever He calls us to do. Come, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us so much that you wrote and you spoke, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at end. And so, Lord, truly we want to repent of the many ways in which we have not lived as kingdom people. For example, we have taken matters in our own hands. Instead of not retaliating, we have taken revenge. And so many other things as mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, we ask for your forgiveness. But importantly, Lord, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the revelation of your Holy Spirit, help us to have a renewed mind. Let the Word of God cleanse us, renew us, renew our minds especially, that we will live as kingdom people. We may live in this world, but remind us we are not of this world. So may we live truly as your ambassadors and bring you glory every single day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.